Hello and welcome back to Tide Talks, the Save the Bay podcast series where we're having conversations about environmental issues and discussing the work of Save the Bay with Save the Bay staff members. I've got a great guest joining me today, Save the Bay Advocacy Director Topher Hamlet. Topher, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And thank you for coming back. I know this is your second time on the show. For people who've been listening, that episode will have aired quite a while ago. I think that was actually the first one that uh, we recorded. So for the benefit of new listeners, Perhaps you could explain quickly what you do in the office. I know it's a big question for anyone who works here, as people here have a lot of different responsibilities. But what do you take care of as director of advocacy? As director of advocacy, I manage a team of six people, and we work on all the major issues and campaigns uh, that Save the Bay is is uh, involved with. Mm-hmm. So everything from policy work to watchdogging work to habitat uh, restoration and adaptation. Uh, so we're sort of on the front lines, and 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 the advocacy team is the uh, is the group of people that the public probably sees the most when it comes to um, you know stories in the media about what's going on with Narragansett Bay and Save the Bay. Right, right. So we'll be talking about one of those front lines issues today, and something that's very much within the purview of our advocacy team. And we're going to be talking about um, Save the Bay's interactions with and effects on the oil industry as it relates to Narragansett Bay. And I think it'll be interesting to sort of begin in the middle of things. And I'd just like to introduce the North Cape oil spill, which is going to be our first topic today. On January 19th, 1996, the North Cape oil barge grounded near Moonstone Beach in southern Rhode Island during a nor'easter winter storm. And the hull ruptured and released... 820,000 gallons of oil into the Rhode Island Sound. So, Topher, you were personally involved in Save the Bay's response to that disaster, and the scene at Moonstone Beach was intense and chaotic in that time, and a lot of people familiar with the oil spill will know that fact. What was the scene like at the Save the Bay office at the same time? Uh, Because while there was a lot of action down on the beach, I'm assuming there was also a lot of action within the organization in response to that event. Yeah, the, the atmosphere, the environment in our offices at Smith Street were uh, intense as well. And this is uh, during a time, you know, pre-internet really, and before everyone had cell phones. So communication was actually a big challenge then. Yeah. And so, so the organization quickly mobilized itself and set up a phone bank with dozens of phones in the office. Mm-hmm. Uh, we anticipated a lot of incoming calls and, and we got them. I think we received over 3,000 calls yeah. just in a sh- over the, the weekend or the week yeah. of the spill. And uh, so we had to be ready to speak to our members directly, to the press. Uh, John Torgan, our baykeeper, was on the scene in South County yeah. assessing what was going on and communicating that back to the office so we could communicate it uh, out to the public and mm-hmm. to our members yeah. but it, it was a it was a beehive it was yeah. bustling and uh, none of us had really had any training for this before mm-hmm. um, the world prodigy happened in 1989 but it was a very different kind of event yeah and uh, this was something that really challenged us to really step up our game and respond on all levels. Yeah, th- and this was a serious spill, right? This uh, So the spill occurs during a winter storm. So it occurs at a time when there's heavy surf, 
which uh, some people have commented may have mixed the oil more thoroughly into the water column and creating more damage. And the, the result of the spill was that a 250 square mile area in the Block Island Sound became close to fishing. It was a large area affected. Um, the DEM cites a statistic that 9 million lobsters approximately were killed by the spill. I mean, that's an astounding number, and that's hard to believe, but but it's true, right? I mean, the damage that the spill caused was incredible. The damage was overwhelming. The, the um, In addition to 9 million plus lobsters dying, um, hundreds of thousands of shellfish, fish, seabirds uh, perished as well. And uh, it, it, the oil did mix up and in, mix into the water um, because of the rough seas. It also was sort of drilled into the sand on Moonstone Beach, yeah. um, almost three feet deep into the sand. So it was everywhere. And uh, the conditions made it very difficult uh, to sort of respond to it and skim oil off the top like like uh, you you'd expect in, a, in an oil spill response. Right, exactly. So Save the Bay's immediate response was to orchestrate a volunteer cleanup effort. So your phone's ringing constantly. Mm-hmm. Are those mostly volunteers calling in to help out with the spill? Most, yeah, most most of the calls were people wanting to know what was going on and wanting to help yeah. primarily. Mm-hmm. So we had two, our response was really twofold. One is that with the baykeeper on site, we needed to keep track of uh, in real time of what the state and federal agencies were doing in response. Right. You know, what was the damage assessment? Uh, what were plans for recovery ultimately? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and and John Torgan, our baykeeper at the time, did a great job of, of really getting right in the middle of all that mm-hmm. and uh, making sure that we had all the information we need and also that our concerns for the environmental health of the South Coast were being taken to account. And I would say that the agencies were very responsive. The second um, and more sort of widespread effort was a volunteer management effort. So we we were wound up being in the position of, of, um, I think we work with the folks at Mystic Aquarium on on, um, marine life rescue training. Mm -hmm. And ultimately we, had staff and volunteers out there training other volunteers to one, um, do mortality counts of marine life washed up on the shore, uh, bird rescue, um, and any other rescue of marine life that needed to happen. So it was, it was quite a, uh, it was quite an intense time. Yeah. And that's a fascinating factor of this cleanup effort because it does require some sort of uh, specialized intention. You know, like take me for instance, um, I could head down and do a, a litter cleanup anywhere and it's pretty obvious what I should be doing. Uh, but when you're talking about assessing ecological damage, um, and you know, you're talking about marine life mortality and then caring for marine life that's affected when you're trying to clean birds that are that are covered in oil and uh, that's the sort of thing that I couldn't walk up to and immediately be helpful so uh, in terms of a volunteer effort it was not only large but also complicated uh, during this spill Uh, and and, you know and everyone wanted to help we were overwhelmed with the amount of 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 calls of, of interest and I think people's instinct is to run down to the beach and and pick up and clean up and, yeah. and assist um, 
distressed marine life, but it's not that simple. Right. So people do need to be trained, need to be organized, mm-hmm. and, and data needs to be collected in a very methodical way for it to yeah. be a useful exercise. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So obviously the organization's first instinct at the time was to clean up whatever damage had happened and, and make good on the situation as it had already occurred. And then once the situation is handled or managed and taken under control, the organization starts to look at preventative measures to prevent something like this from happening again. And that's also your purview as a member of the advocacy team. So once you'd handled this whole volunteer cleanup effort, there's no time to rest. Uh, how did the how did Save the Bay move forward and what was the organization looking for in terms of policy that could correct accidents like this? That's a great question. And, and um, it, some of the most important work we've ever done is in prevention mm-hmm. of pollution. And an event like the North Cape oil spill teaches us a lot of things. And in this case, we learned that there was a real gap in state and federal law uh, in terms of oil spill prevention. Yeah. So. Um, at, at the federal level, we work with our congressional delegation at the time, representatives Jack Reed and Patrick Kennedy, mm-hmm. as well as Senator John Chafee. And at right. the state level, we work with Senator Dominic DeSandro and also Charlie Fogarty mm-hmm. to um, to enact some state laws that, that would go a long way in preventing um, this kind of thing from happening again. Right. So we learned that uh, there was no law requiring a working anchor system on a barge. Wow. Okay. Or on a tug. And and um, we also learned that the barges that were plying the waters of Narragansett Bay were not double-hulled. They were just a, um, they were really metal vessels filled with oil with just a small um, thin layer of steel between the oil and the water. Yeah. And so one puncture could result in disaster, and that's what happened in the uh, North Cape. Yeah, exactly. So Rhode Island um, passed legislation um, at the time which required um, double-held vessels, initially in bad weather, but ultimately over, you know, permanently, um, to be used to transport oil, Mm -hmm. required anchored systems to actually be functioning. Yeah. And um, so, so those were... Those were uh, important policy measures that we supported mm-hmm. at the time. Were, were those measures popular at the time? Or did they seem like sort of a common sense uh, measure or uh, a good step to take for the whole industry, for the whole state, maybe for the whole country? You're talking about the federal level. Or was there a feeling that Save the Bay was was leading a charge on that? Uh, the only resistance to that that I recall was from the American Petroleum Institute, right. which claimed that um, requiring double hole barges was an economic hardship right. on their industry, and, and mm-hmm. that's just laughable. And uh, in the end, that argument didn't carry much weight. Yeah. So the North Cape oil spill was such a traumatic event that the public, I think, was ready for mm-hmm. major policy steps to prevent that kind of thing from happening again. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you could even, I mean, if you wanted to take the other side, you could argue that the, the precautions to prevent spills do somewhat benefit the oil industry as well, because they lose their products when spills occur, and mm-hmm. they, they lose well, profit that's there. Well, that's a good point. Uh, the other unintended consequence of passing the double-hull law is that companies 
got contracts to do work to build those double hole yeah. barges, including Sinesco down at Quonset Point. So, mm-hmm. it, so uh, actually putting Rhode Islanders to work to prevent oil spills was a um, unexpected but good outcome. <laughs> yeah, I think of the North Cape. Yeah, shipbuilding goes up a little bit. So it, it wasn't go. worth it, by the way. It wasn't <laughs> worth it to have that damage. But I will say that um, you know I think the laws that were enacted were a, an appropriate and, and good response mm-hmm. supported by Rhode Islanders at large. Yeah. Well, and, and that's what you've got to do. You know, you sort of correct when you see accidents and you make the changes that you, you need to make. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think it's an issue that comes up much anymore. Of course, you've got, uh, you know, more of a read on the, the pulse of the environmental issues of the Bay. Um, but it, it seems that a, a person just following the news wouldn't say that oil transportation issues are a problem in and around Narragansett Bay, right? So, uh, to that well, to, extent, to, today maybe that's true today. Yeah, um, but we had two major events in seven years. Yeah, um, 1989 and 1996. So at the time, it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other outcome, by the way, which I think is a good outcome, is that um, a nickel a barrel fee was assessed to oil imports, petroleum imports into the state. Okay, and a, and a barrel's forty-two gallons. So that those fees that are collected are actually used to help the state prepare for and respond to oil spills okay. in related emergencies. All right. And and um, in 2004, we actually got legislation passed that took a quarter of a million dollars per year out of that oil spill fund and put it towards habitat restoration. Nice. Th- those funds have helped protect and restore lots of salt marshes around the bay and the mm-hmm. coast and have also leveraged millions of federal dollars for mm-hmm. these kinds of projects. Yeah. Well, that's that's actually comforting that there's a fund, like an emergency fund to clean up a spill if one does happen in the future. So that yeah. you wouldn't have to rely on volunteers who are coming out with good intentions, but maybe don't have the skills uh, to deal with a spill literally in the way it should be dealt with. Yeah. The... the, the the oil spill fund also it trains state workers. It it makes sure that the equipment that we have in the state is up to date. Mm-hmm. Um, training exercises happen with the state and with local response authorities. So we need to be ready. Uh, we import a lot of petroleum into these into our waters. I I can't give you a figure on that. Yeah. Um, but we know that there are five terminals up here in the Providence River. And here at Save the Bay, we see those barges passing through here and offloading every day. Yeah. And uh, we have to be ready as a state. So, mm-hmm. um, again, a, a good policy outcome of the North Cape was the establishment of this fund. Yeah. So in terms of the current state of oil transportation, like, like we were saying, we haven't seen uh, a bad situation in a while. Are there any additional changes or improvements in that area that Save the Bay is advocating for today? Or are you just more so taking the line of preserving the, the legislation and the policies that have created this safe period so far? We, we, we always need to protect any gains that we make, right. um, although I don't see any certainly any imminent threats to those laws. I mean, who would who would want to go back to single hole barges? Yeah. Um, so actually what we are looking at now is doubling that oil, that oil um, import fee yeah. to 10 cents per barrel mm-hmm. or 42 gallons, but actually using those funds, which would be almost $2 million a year, 
to actually work on climate resilience projects, nice. helping cities and towns deal with rising seas oh. and storm surges and things like that. Yeah. And there's a real connection between um, climate change impacts and our use of petroleum. Exactly. So we think logically it makes a lot of sense. Politically, mm-hmm. it's very challenging. And the, and the big opponent is once again the American Petroleum yeah, Institute. I can imagine. <laughs> uh, and their lobbyists uh, who represent the terminals here in mm-hmm. Narragansett Bay. But you know, the even at 10 cents a barrel, the impact at the pump would be very minimum for consumers. Yeah. So we're talking about, you know, an extra, an extra five cents per barrel is about a 10th of a penny mm-hmm. per gallon at yeah. the pump. So right. think of it as, you know, one or two cents per fill up yeah. to protect Narragansett Bay. That's a pretty good, pretty good deal for um, Rhode Islanders. Yeah, and it's a reasonable thing to do in the in the ocean state, which will be greatly impacted by sea level rise, one of the primary effects of, of climate change. And it's already happening. Yeah. And, and I think cities and towns are feeling it. Yep. Um, in, in this past election, in the Green Economy and Clean Water Bond, mm-hmm. there's a $5 million slug of funds for um, climate resilience. Right. So the state is already becoming aware of this. The mm-hmm. Governor Ramundra, to her credit, put that in the budget. Yeah. And, and and that got put before the voters, thanks to the General Assembly. And Rhode Island voters approved it by 79%. Nice. With 79% approval. So yeah. so it's a um, mm-hmm. it's something that Rhode Islanders obviously care about. Yeah, right. It does seem like the state is interested and supportive of those issues. Nonetheless, I think it's a somewhat ambitious political ambition to raise that the fee the per barrel fee um but of course you know save the bay is not intimidated by a great challenge how does the advocacy team go about advocating for those specific policies i know that you um, you'll visit the state house you, you communicate with politicians and members of our legislature is that basically the work that you do on the day to day that's what i do yes yeah um, but you know even the most simple legislation can take years to pass. Right. You know, mom and pop apple pie legislation, the Habitat Restoration Trust Fund that was passed took eight years. Yeah. Uh, and that was because of state house politics mostly. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so uh, we do stick with it. We will stick with this until we get it passed. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it involves working with the cities and towns who are actually dealing with rising seas and storm surges and flooding now. Mm-hmm. They know what's going on. Yeah. And the cities and towns around the state do not have the resources they need to grapple with um, these mm-hmm. kinds of problems. So, you know, as an example, um, the eastern end of India Point in Providence is actually caving in. Mm-hmm. And the bike paths and walkways at that part of the point, which are used heavily by the public, are now um, at risk. Right. So in the, the shoreline of India Point needs to be shored up, yeah. and those paths need to be moved back and out of harm's way from floods and storm surges mm-hmm. and the like. So, um, And that's just one example. So um, a lot of it is does come down to working with the people who are most affected yeah. by climate change. Yeah, right. That's an interesting strategy. So you're going around the state, you're finding the places that are affected, the places that share this common interest, and then almost orchestrating them into a single voice um, that could you know, advocate for these policies um, in our state government. And, and we have been working on these kinds of projects for years, um, primarily Wendley Ferguson, who's our habitat right. expert and director. She has worked 
um, with all kinds of cities and towns on projects large and small mm-hmm. to adapt to climate change impacts. And right. so she has a whole catalog of dozens of projects that have happened and need to need to take place mm-hmm. in order to um, help Rhode Island ad- adapt to sea level rise and, and other climate change impacts. Yeah. Man, well, it's fascinating work that you guys do. And, and um, I'm sure we could talk about it all day. But that specifically that tax uh, or, or raising the fee on the, the barrels of oil uh, as a climate resilience fund, that's something that we may see more and more around the country. And it really makes sense that something like that would uh, establish itself in the ocean state in a place that will probably be severely affected by climate change, by the effects of burning fuel. So it's an, you know, we have an opportunity to be a, a national leader right. um, in climate change adaptation. And uh, it's right in front of us. We just need to grab the opportunity and yeah. we'll work hard until we get it done. Yeah, well, it's a very exciting story to uh, to follow. And again, it's one that began a long time ago. You could say the World Prodigy Spill in 89 or the North Cape that you were so involved with in 96. And, and these issues have developed and changed over time. And, um, you know, they really do evolve. When, it, when oil spills on a beach, it's very obvious. When it's the effects of oil burning over time, changing the planet's climate, less obvious, but just as important. And, uh, you know, it's it's cool to see how the organization has tracked these issues over time, but always stayed right in step with them along the way. Yeah, we have to we have to um, keep pace with um, it changes in the environment itself. It also changes in policy yeah. um, in order to do our job well. Yeah. But that's what we do. Well, yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming down today and uh, sharing those stories with me and taking some time out. Um, I'm just going to list a couple things here. You can check out uh, Save the Bay online at savebay.org if you're interested in becoming a member or volunteering. You can also follow us on Twitter at Save the Bay RI or visit facebook.com slash Save Bay Narragansett. You can find me on Twitter if you search for Chris Joseph. That's my name. Let me know if you like the show. And also feel free to stop by the Bay Center at 100 Save the Bay Drive in Providence, Rhode Island. Our grounds are open to the public and it's a beautiful building if you haven't uh, ever been down here it's a fantastic view and you can see a lot of the water and a lot of what we're what we're doing our work here for and uh, finally Topher, i just want to ask you if there's anything you'd like to promote or anything you'd like to point people towards as we sign off today i would like people to continue to visit save the bay's website yeah. and follow us on social media mm-hmm. especially for this effort to establish a coastal adaptation fund yeah that, that is very very important right mm-hmm. now so uh, do that and also participate uh, by contacting your legislator. We're going to add some some muscle here in the coming months to actually help people uh, participate in the in the um, legislative process. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'll say that the uh, the website's looking good right now. Yeah, just got revamped. The communications great. team is very proud of that. So if you haven't seen it, just click on it. It's <laughs> worth seeing at least once. Um, all right, Topher, thanks again for coming down. Thanks, and, Chris. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk to you again. So uh, for the meantime, uh, take care. Thank you.